Once a little girl, she came home from Sunday school so excited. She announced, Mom, God can do anything. He works miracles with his left hand. He heals with his left hand. He holds us close to him with his left hand. Well, the mother was thrilled that her little girl was so enthused about God. But she didn't understand this fixation with God's left hand. She told her daughter, honey, you realize God can also use his right hand. (laughs) The little girl, she shook her head and she said, no, mom, he can't. We learned in Sunday school that Jesus is sitting on God's right hand. Well, obviously, the little girl was slightly confused. Jesus isn't sitting on God's right hand, but at his right hand. Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 teaches us that after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven where he sat down with God on God's right hand. And today, he functions as our eternal high priest. He ever lives to make intercession. In chapter 5, verse 10, the writer of Hebrews introduced the priesthood of Jesus. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say. And yet the writer was unable to say it because the Hebrews weren't ready for these deeper truths. His readers could handle the milk, but not the meat. In his commentary on Hebrews, Warren Wearsby, he makes an interesting observation. The emphasis in Hebrews is not on what Christ did on the earth, the milk of the word, but what he is doing in heaven, the meat of the word. Isn't that interesting? Wearsby saying that the basics of the Christian faith revolve around Jesus' earthly life, and his ministry, while his priestly ministry constitute the meat. You know, Jesus spent just 30-odd years at work on earth, but he's now spent 2,000 years ministering in heaven. The priesthood of Jesus is an important topic we shouldn't overlook, and that's our subject this morning. Chapter 7 begins, For this Melchizedek, This strange fellow, Melchizedek, is mentioned three times in the Scripture. Genesis 14 brings him up in his historical context. Psalm 110 in a prophetic context. And Hebrews 7 discusses him in a doctrinal context. Now, if if I were to ask you to name the top ten major figures in the Old Testament, I'm sure that Melchizedek wouldn't be on your list he probably wouldn't even make your top 50. But the writer of the book of Hebrews surprises us by placing an amazing importance on the life and ministry of this obscure, cryptic character named Melchizedek. We're told first that Melchizedek was king of Salem. Salem means peace. It's short for the name Jerusalem or city of peace. Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem and the priest of the Most High God. That he was both a king and a priest immediately tips us off that Melchizedek has a unique status in the scriptures. You remember in Israel there was a sharp division between church and state. Kings were forbidden to serve as priests. The kings were from the tribe of Judah, whereas the priests were from the tribe of Levi. And any crossover was forbidden. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, when King Uzziah tried to usurp the role of priest, God struck him with leprosy. Under the old covenant God made with Israel, only Levites were allowed to serve as priests before God. You could say the sons of Levi had the right genes. That Melchizedek was both a king and a priest means that he was of a different order of priest. That he stood outside the requirements of the Old Testament or the Levitical priesthood. Well, we're told this Melchizedek met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, remember the story. (coughs) A coalition of Syrian marauders raided the city of Sodom and took Lot and his family captive. Uncle Abraham came to the rescue. In Genesis 14, Abraham chases down the bandits and he returns to Palestine with both Lot and the loot. And it was on his way back from this rescue mission that Abraham met this man, Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, verse 18, we're told, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Notice there the mention of the bread and the wine. We'll come back to that later. Melchizedek then blessed Abraham. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Of course, a tenth is another word for a tithe. And here Abraham tithed his spoils to Melchizedek. Elsewhere in Scripture, Abraham's act is held up as an example to us. This is where we get the principle of tithing or of donating a tenth of our income to God to support the priestly ministry of the church on earth. You know, it's amazing today, you can even tithe online. Of course, Abraham's actions was a surprise for a man considered to be a spiritual giant. Abraham was the most respected and honored person in all the Old Testament. As we'll discover later, the giver of a blessing is of higher stature than the one blessed, just as the recipient of a tithe is of greater authority than its payer. That Abraham humbled himself before Melchizedek was an acknowledgement of Melchizedek's superiority. Now we're told more about this mysterious king-priest. His name Melchizedek, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. He's the king of righteousness and peace. And then verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest continually. Boy, how would you like to be the FBI agent assigned to do this guy's background check? No dad, no mom, no descendants, no birthday, no date of death. If you didn't know better, you'd think this guy was in the witness protection program. There is actually much debate as to the actual identity of this man, Melchizedek. Was he simply a Canaanite priest or was he more? The early church father Origen believed him to be an angel. Other scholars have suggested that he was Noah's son, Shem. 
Some commentators have explained away his mysterious description without father, without mother, etc., as more figurative than literal. To them, it's not that he had no parents, but that in contrast to the Levitical priesthood, his parentage was irrelevant to his position. That sounds good, but that's not what the writer says. I personally believe that when you look at this description in verse 3, when you take it literally and begin to add up all of the clues, there's only one explanation. Look at it again. King of righteousness, king of peace, or prince of peace. He carries with him the elements of bread and wine or Christian communion. No human parentage or genealogy, no beginning or end of life. In my opinion, Melchizedek can be none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus. Long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was the king priest of Salem. Verse 4, now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Now the discussion gets very, very Jewish. A little Jewishy, if we can use that word. Hey, recall this letter was written to the Hebrews. So its issues, its arguments are going to be relevant to Jewish concerns. What happened to the Levitical priesthood may not jump out at us as that important, but it was critical to those who had received this letter. By trying to put ourselves in their shoes, there's a lot that we can learn in the process. Verse 5, And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, that is, Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Remember, the receiver of a tithe and the initiator of a blessing are greater in terms of spiritual stature than the payer of that tithe and the recipient of that blessing. Thus, when the tribes of Israel tithe to the tribe of Levi. And then the Levites blessed the same tribes. It was evidence that Levi was of a superior spiritual stature than the rest of Israel. But likewise, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, he was conceding that Melchizedek had more chops than he did. Levi might have been superior within Abraham's family, but Melchizedek was superior to the whole of Abraham's family, including the priesthood of Levi. In short, Melchizedek was a greater priest than the Levites. Verse 8 adds, For here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them. And implied is that Melchizedek isn't a mere mortal. There's more to him of whom it is witnessed that he lives. The historical Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14. Oh, that's 2200 B.C. But here we're told that he lives. Present tense. In the first century, he lived. Today, he lives. Melchizedek is a priest forever. 
And in an odd kind of Jewish way, the Levitical priests actually paid tithes to Melchizedek. And this is where our Western Gentile logic is going to break down. Just remember, this book was written to Middle Eastern Jews, verse 9. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, the Hebrews, they touted a concept called racial solidarity, that one man could act on behalf of a group of men. This was the idea behind the war between Israel and the Philistines. You remember each side chose a champion to fight on behalf of their army. Instead of risking thousands of lives, David and Goliath fought it out in a proxy war. And even an ancestor could act on behalf of future generations. So, according to the writer of Hebrews, when Abraham paid tithes, the Levites were still in his loins, in his Levi genes, so to speak. Thus, the Levitical priests paid tithes to Melchizedek in their father Abraham. And in so doing, were showing Melchizedek's priestly superiority over Levi. It's strange thinking to us, but it was a convincing argument to the Jews. This all illustrated that Jesus is a better priest than the priests of Judaism. And leaving behind their religion to follow Jesus, these Hebrews had improved their lot. It reminds me of the biology final. It had been a tough class all semester. And that final exam promised to be extremely difficult. The professor decided to give his students a break. He told the class that they could bring to the exam as much information as they could fit on a piece of notebook paper. Most students wrote in tiny print, cramming as much as possible on an 8.5 by 11-inch sheet of paper, except for one student. He came to class. He laid his sheet of notebook paper on the floor, and he had his friend, who happened to be a graduate student in biology, stand on that paper. His expert friend told him everything he needed to know. And he was the only student that day in the biology class to get an A. Proving conclusively, it's not as much what you know as it is who you know that counts. And this is true in religion. No one can enter the presence of a perfect, holy God on his or her own. You can only go as far as your priest is able to take you. This is why the Hebrews were besieged with doubt. In embracing Jesus, they had been cut off from the only priests they had ever known, these Levitical priests. Yet here they're being assured, it's okay. Jesus is a better priest than the Levites. Verse 11, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? The order of Aaron was a reference to the Levitical priest. The high priest came from the family of Aaron. In Psalm 110 verse 4, David had prophesied that Messiah would be a member of a new priestly order. If the Levites and the law they ushered in had been effective, if they were really gaining for Israel access to God, why did 
David think a new priesthood was needed? But we're told, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. The old covenant had failed to bring people into the presence of God. And thus a new covenant was needed. And along with a new priesthood came a new covenant. With a new order of priesthood comes a new set of rules governing those priests and their duties. We're told, for he, that is Jesus, of whom these things are spoken, belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Jesus was born of the royal tribe, the tribe of Judah. The priest came from the tribe of Levi. Again, under the Old Testament, Jesus could have never been a priest. That's why God established a new covenant, a new testament, with a new priesthood and new requirements under which to operate. Recall the items Melchizedek brought? The bread and the wine are symbols of the new covenant. To bring in a new priesthood, God offered them a new covenant. And yet, and it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, and here he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, priestly authority was conveyed by the law of Moses to the tribe of Levi. But under the new covenant, that authority is earned. And Jesus earned the role of priest by virtue of his resurrection from the dead and now his endless life. He overcame death, hell, and the grave. Who now is better equipped to usher people into God's presence than our Lord Jesus? Realize there's two kinds of authority, delegated and earned. On the TV and movie screens when John Wayne rode into town or when Jack Bauer showed up, the bad guy shaped up. John or Jack might not have been carrying a badge, but it didn't matter. They both were in charge by virtue of who they were and what they had done. John Wayne was always the most respected man in the room. The old duke didn't need a badge. And the same is true with Jesus. He is our priest, our high priest, not because of an arbitrary decree from some ancient sage, but because he is the most qualified man for the job. Jesus has earned the right to be our priest. Levitical authority was a matter of pedigree, but Jesus' authority was a matter of integrity and eternity. Jesus didn't inherit a position. He merited a position. He lived a sinless life, died an innocent death, rose from the dead, and then ascended to God's right hand. Jesus pioneered his own way to God. Levites were given the right to be priests. Jesus earned that right, which makes him a far better priest. Verse 18 For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect or literally complete. 
You know, the law got man started with God. It was the remedial class, but it didn't finish anything. Sadly, when my son went to college, he had to take some remedial classes. And I begrudgingly had to gulp hard and pay for those classes, classes that weren't even going to count toward his degree. But at least it got him started. And this was the Jewish law. It's in Christ, though, that we graduate. Verse 19 declares, On the other hand, in Christ, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And then verse 20, And inasmuch as he, that is Jesus, was not made priest without an oath, for they, the Levites, have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. See, God never took an oath regarding the Levitical priesthood. He never pledged himself to permanently support their ministry, for he knew that they'd eventually be replaced by Jesus. But in Psalm 110, verse 4, when the priesthood of Jesus was predicted, God swore to support him eternally. The Lord has sworn you are a priest forever. This is why the hope Jesus brings is so much better. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. And here's another weakness of the Levitical priesthood. No one ever finished a game. They kept going to the bullpen. Their ministry was transitory. Levitical priests kept dying off, and they had to get a new one. The Jewish historian Josephus said that there were 83 high priests from the time of Aaron through 70 A.D. when the temple was finally destroyed by the Romans. The Jewish Talmud held to a higher count. It claimed 18 priests served in Solomon's temple and over 300 in the rebuilt temple. The point is, no Levitical priest lasted forever. You might say the Levites were here today and gone tomorrow. About the time you gained confidence in one priest, he would die off, and you'd have to develop confidence in another. It was like last year's Braves bullpen. A pitcher would do well for a short time, then he'd flame out and get replaced by a fresh arm. There was no continuity. Verse 24, but he, that is Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Jesus doesn't pull a hammy or tear a rotator cuff or go through a slump. And he certainly doesn't, he doesn't keep dying on the job. He's opposite of here today, gone tomorrow. Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood. He can be counted on. You know what you get with Jesus. If you're trusting in Jesus to secure for you access to God, then you'll have the same confidence a hundred years from now as you do today, for he is a priest forever. And then verse 25 is a glorious verse. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Once an eight-year-old boy, he came home from school with a stuffed animal that he had won at the Valentine's party. His dad asked him, he said, son, how did you win the prize? 
Well, the little boy recounted. He said, our teacher wrote all our names on a piece of paper and placed them in a bowl. Then she picked out a name from the bowl, and it was me. That's when a guilty look appeared on the little guy's face. He confessed. He said, but Dad, I cheated. A confused father asked me, he said, how did you cheat, son? The little guy, he looked up and he answered. He said, Dad, I prayed. Realize there is tremendous power in prayer. Hey, compared to how our unsaved friends and neighbors try to make it through life, prayer is almost like cheating. We really do have a hotline to God. Sometimes we wonder if God hears and answers our prayers, but that's not the issue that should concern us. Here's what we should ask. Does God answer Jesus' prayers? And of course the answer is yes, absolutely. I love this painting of Jesus. What is he doing today? He's interceding for us. He's interceding for the world. He's interceding for a world that's besieged by a virus. Today, Jesus is praying for us. Verse 25, he always lives to make intercession for us. When I grow apathetic or I get distracted, Jesus still stands before the eternal judge as my righteousness. When I blow it horribly, my advocate, Jesus Christ Esquire, reminds the court in heaven that his blood paid for my forgiveness. When I ask for strength or need healing or plead for mercy or desire patience or long for love, or if I'm besieged with fear, Jesus intercedes for me and secures for me the blessing I need, even in tough times. Because Jesus occupies eternity and always makes intercession, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Since Jesus is in charge of my salvation, it means that I'm saved today and I will still be a million years from now. Yet often, verse 25 gets misread. Instead of save us to the uttermost, we read, save us from the uttermost. Now it's true, Jesus' blood can save the most disgusting, despicable sinner. Jesus can save the underbelly of society, the drug dealers and the prostitutes and the child molesters and the serial killers. He can save from the uttermost, even the guttermost. But that's not what this verse teaches. The writer says that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. The emphasis here is not the extent from which he saves, but the extent to which he saves us. <coughs> I've heard people remark, oh, that guy, he was saved by the skin of his teeth. He just barely made it to heaven. But that's not true. Jesus never saves anyone by the skin of his teeth. No one just barely makes it to heaven. When Jesus saves you, friend, you're saved to the uttermost. You're as saved as saved can get. All your sin, past and present and future, gets blotted out. Jesus' forgiveness is complete and total and permanent. As long as you trust in Christ, your standing with God is as sure and steady and as reliable as it can be. 
There are things in life that occur incrementally and gradually. Buying a house, for example. I ran across an online buyer's guide. It has 18 steps. 18, no less. You pre-qualify for a loan. Then you find a house. Then you offer a contract. Then the buyer counters. Then you counter back. Then contingencies get added. Then the contract is signed. Then you actually qualify for the loan. Then a survey has to be done, a title search, an inspection, a termite letter, and on and on it goes to infamy. Thankfully, a relationship with God doesn't develop gradually. You don't have to pre-qualify. There are no counter-offers or inspections. Wow, aren't you glad Jesus takes us as is? There's no waiting and wondering if you'll be accepted, if the deal will actually go through. No, when you embrace Jesus with your whole heart, God closes the transaction immediately, and he moves in spontaneously. From the first moment you believe, you are as saved as you can get. Yes. He saves us from the uttermost, but he also saves us to the uttermost. We're saved from the guttermost to the uttermost. How about that? And then verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Jesus is our high priest by virtue of his intrinsic worth and value, not his pedigree like the Levites, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The Levites, they sacrificed herds and herds of lambs while Jesus offered just one himself. You know, right now, I wish I had some stock in Lysol disinfectant wipes. We're using them around here like crazy. We're wiping everything down hourly. Some people are walking around, that's all they're doing is just wiping stuff. Don't you wish you could just wipe once and be done? Yet this is what Jesus has accomplished. The Old Testament priests, they wipe daily, constantly. They were always offering sacrifices, but Jesus offered his sacrifice once for all. He never needs to spill another drop of blood. One sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus has permanently cleansed us of all our sin. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Jewish priests were mortal men. Jesus is God's son. Who would you prefer representing you? Now you'd think that this would close the case on who is the better priest. But there is another argument. You see, a priest can only, is only as good as the temple in which he works. You know, you could be a great ice skater, but if you have no ice... You can be the best swimmer in the county, but if you have no pool. And likewise, for a person to be an effective priest, he needs a temple in which he can ply his trade. And chapter 8 
tackles the subject of Jesus' temple. Verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Hey, there's no comparison here. Levitical priests, they ministered in a man-made earthly temple, the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus ministers in the heavenly temple, the spiritual temple, the very throne room of God. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish life and religion. And these Hebrew believers who read this letter had been barred from its courts because of their faith in Jesus. Thus, they desperately needed to understand that they have access to a far greater temple, to heaven itself. Verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Now, this is so important. Here we're told that the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple in Jerusalem were actually copies or small-scale models of heaven itself. In the book of Revelation, the veil is peeled back and we get a peek into heaven. And we find the realities of what the Old Testament temple replicated. You know, the furniture adorning the temple, the ark of the covenant, the altar, the lampstands, the labor. They were all copies of what we now find in heaven. The temple of old was a shadow land of heaven. Verse 5, for as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said... See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And here he quotes Exodus 25 verse 40. On Mount Sinai, Moses was shown a pattern of the heavenly throne room and all of its furnishings. How Moses was shown this heavenly pattern was a matter of great speculation among the rabbis. There's a passage in the Jewish Talmud that actually makes the comment, an ark of fire and a table of fire, and a candlestick of fire came down from heaven. These Moses saw and reproduced. Some rabbis taught that Gabriel, the angel, the archangel, appeared to Moses in a carpenter's apron, holding models of the sacred furniture. He then showed Moses how to build them. The Bible doesn't give us specifics. But it's certain that when Moses descended from Mount Sinai, he not only held the Two tablets of the Ten Commandments under one arm, but a set of blueprints under the other. The point of the author here is that the Jewish priests worship God in a replica, in a toy model, in a copy of the original. You know, the temple in Jerusalem was like a, a kit car. You know what I'm talking about. The body looks like a Ferrari but it sits on a Volkswagen chassis and has a windshield from a Ford Pinto. Likewise, the Levitical temple was nothing but a kit car copy of God's celestial throne in heaven. The Old Testament priests 
drove a replica, whereas Jesus serves in the real deal. And this too makes him a better priest. Verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Again, with a new priesthood came new and better promises. The Levites served under an inferior system, but Jesus is priest under the new covenant. The rules by which he operates, the promises that he makes are far better than those of the Old Testament priests. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Again, if the old covenant had worked, if it had been effective and fully reconciled man to God, a new covenant would have never been initiated. But God did promise a new covenant. And here the writer quotes a lengthy passage from the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. The two stone tablets given to Moses were imprinted, engraved with God's law. But they couldn't impart God's power to keep his law. You see, the old covenant was about regulation, whereas the new covenant is about motivation. The law was like an x-ray. It diagnosed the break, the problem, but it did nothing to heal. A better covenant was needed to bring healing. And so verse 10, still quoting from Jeremiah, tells us, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Under this new covenant, God no longer writes on stone tablets. He now etches his intentions and his desires into human hearts. When a person becomes a Christian, they become a new creation. You receive new instincts, a new passion. God gives you a new heart. Dr. Christian Bernard was the first surgeon to perform a human heart transplant. Once he asked a patient if he wanted to see his old heart. Bernard took Philip Bellberg into a room and opened up a closet. The doctor then took out a glass jar and he handed Philip his old heart. For a moment, there was nothing but silence. Philip Bellberg was the first man in history to hold his own heart in his hands. He asked Dr. Bernard a few technical questions about the operation. Then Philip picked up the jar. He took a last long look at his heart. And then he said to the doctor, So this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He set it down on the counter and walked away, leaving it behind forever. And I hope this is what you've done. This is what happens to a person who embraces Jesus as their Lord and Savior. A heart transplant occurs. God cuts out 
our old defiant heart and replaces it with a new compliant heart. You go from defiance to compliance. You receive new desires, a new heart. You get a heart that's impulse is to love God and to love others. There's no need to go back, guys. Leave that old heart behind. Follow Jesus. And you're also placed on intimate terms with God. Verse 11. For none of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brothers saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Under the new covenant, there are no second-hand experiences with God. You know God, not by proxy or by priest, but personally through Jesus. I don't know if you saw it, but a few days ago, even Pope Francis live-streamed his Mass. He told Catholics all around the world that if they were locked down and unable to confess to a priest, they could, and I quote, Go directly to God and experience God's loving forgiveness. What an admission for the leader of Catholicism that they could go to God directly. Of course, later he said that once you got to the priest, if you could get to the priest, you should. Sort of discounting what he had said earlier. But according to the Bible, his exception is the rule. But we don't need a human priest. We can go to God directly. We have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. I don't care what religion you adhere to. Everybody who truly knows God, from redneck to royalty, comes to know Him the exact same way. By faith in Jesus Christ. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, we're told. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. What a beautiful thought. What God forgives, He forgets. When you come to Jesus, He forgives all your sins. He disinfects you from the virus of sin completely. He cleans your slate. You receive a brand new start. So verse 13, in that He says a new covenant, He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The author of Hebrews is assuring these Jewish Christians that it's no longer necessary to live under the old covenant. Judaism, with all of its rules and rituals and requirements, with its priests and its penalties, it's all now archaic and out of date with the dawning of Christianity. God has struck a new deal with His people. All through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. God promises to give us a new heart, to give us a new start, and we now have a new part. All we have to do is believe.